Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads, the Big Book of AA. I am your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from AA literature through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. So this is going to act as my in-between episode, kind of, you know, take a break between the two bodies of literature. And uh, we're going to, you know, I'm going to explore a couple things that have been used over the years uh, by others in the program that maybe aren't as widely known and some stuff that I personally found really helpful and uh, beneficial to uh, not just my sobriety, but moments of crisis during my sobriety. For the most part, I'm going to keep the same format I have been using. And then the next episode is I think I'm just going to get right into the 12 by 12. So hopefully that's something folks are interested in. I think there's a lot there to explore. Uh, I also think it's going to be the hardest for me to get through. I'll be honest. The first time I read the book, I had a hard time getting through it. I think it'll be easy as far as like, you know, conceptualizing the whole God aspect. But finding ways of making that apply to my life is still kind of be kind of difficult. And there's, yeah, there's times where it's just so saturated with it that it's going to be hard not to react and and verbalize like my disinterest in in the subject. Uh, But I'm going to do my best for now. um, You know, I just want to check in really quick. I took, made the decision finally to uh, take a couple online tests regarding the possibility that I might have ADHD And I know there's going to be some folks that are like, ah, everybody's diagnosed with ADHD. And, you know, I I knew people that probably would have been diagnosed with it and they grew up fine. And I'm going to tell you, man, I, my personal emotional and mental, you know, struggles throughout my entire life, they're not, they're not normal. And I, I, I cannot just sort of wrap it around the idea that it was due to my drinking, like removing the drinking didn't help a lot of these struggles and there's a lot of stuff that just is still difficult that shouldn't be mainly revolving around like attention and focus and sticking things out you know when it comes to like hobbies and relationships and just a lot of stuff and the more that people are sharing their own experiences with having ADHD the more I started considering the possibility that I might so I took some online tests just to kind of have a starter I figured screw it Like the worst that'll happen is, you know, I'll only have a couple things and I'll continue to have some of these struggles. One of the tests I took had 10 markers. And if you had six of them, then it was an indicator that you should talk to your doctor. I had, I have nine, (laughs) I have nine markers uh, that might indicate that I have ADHD. uh, And the 10th one is probable. And it might've been that I was just sort of like reacting to how it was now. And that, that was like my emotional responses to things. I think I have a lot of that kind of that's been really balanced for the last year. But if I really wouldn't were to put that in perspective throughout my entire life, that was something I struggled with a lot. So yeah, so I'm going to call my doctor on Monday and I'm going to see what kind of options there might be. I have a friend who's been struggling with it for a while and he found a medication that's really helped him. You know, my biggest concern with anything like this outside help kind of stuff is feeling like I'm beholden to it. Like I don't want to end up on a medication and that's the only way I can like function. However, I I, see, I know and understand the benefits of it. And that hang up is probably just tied to the idea that it's going to change aspects about me that I don't want changed in an attempt to change aspects about me that I do. And how much of that is just completely outside of my personal control. Now, I say this knowing that in the past, medications have helped me. When 
I first came into the program, I just sort of, you know, knuckled down and, and went straight into the program, focused on my recovery, focused on staying in shape and focused on just being healthy. Uh, my relationship issues didn't really change. You know, I, I seem to be a lot more honest and a lot more like comfortable with being honest in relationships. I, I found myself being more balanced at times, reasonable. My expectations were, were more minimal, but not all the time. And really the only difference was that I didn't rely on alcohol to allow me to be like verbally destructive or emotionally destructive in, in these kinds of things in my own personal life. At, uh, I had a relationship that was extremely toxic. I was with a woman who was a narcissist. I didn't realize she was until much later. You know, I, I did not have much experience with that. Um, and that left me in a, in a situation where, well, it left me feeling like maybe it was me that was the narcissist. If any, if anybody listening has ever been with a narcissist, at the end of the day, you start questioning like your own mental health. That's where you're left. Like you, you start questioning your boundaries. You start questioning all of your decision making. You start questioning whether or not you are crazy. You start questioning whether or not you were the one that was the narcissist. And when that relationship ended and I was left single again, and I was left in a position where I had to come to terms with the fact that it could be a while before I'm able to be in another relationship and should be, and left with the feeling of my age and left with just the sense that I hadn't really made it anywhere in life, that I was in the same place I was despite being sober, despite being where I was. A lot of this stuff just sort of crumbled in. So at 18 months, I found myself suicidal, you know, and suicide is what brought me here. And I, I didn't find myself like attention-seeking suicidal, which I have been. There there were times where I wanted a response. My, um, my experiences with that and with other people who have been that way, you know, I kind of knew the difference. I started doing some Googling, researching some different ways of going about it, and just had a hard time coming to terms with where I was, who I was or thought I was, or, you know, the the whole relationship, the end of the relationship, and then the way that it left me. Now, just to be clear, this wasn't a result of the relationship ending. This was a result of being alone again. It wasn't, I wasn't killing myself over a woman. I was, you know, that wasn't what was going through my head. It was, it was over my life not having moved forward despite my best interests. Me not having, me feeling like I hadn't learned anything, that I hadn't learned my lesson. And uh, this is all relevant, I promise. And where I was left was, there was a very small point where I was really just like, okay, I had the supplies. I didn't make the, the device I had chosen, but I had the supplies and I was like mentally prepared. And the difference was, now in sobriety, the difference was while my emotions were erratic enough and my reaction to those emotions unhealthy enough to put me in that place, I was able to ask myself the question. Now, if you've not heard the episode where I do talk about my suicide attempt, the question I kept asking myself was like, do I want to stop? Is this something I still want to do? And I, and I didn't have an answer. And this time I did. The, the answer was immediate. Like, no, this isn't, we don't want to do this. Like, there's no reason to do this. Um, I'm speaking like there was two people in my head. Maybe there is, who knows? So the only other course of action, because I didn't have at this point in, in this like upheaval of emotions, I didn't have the tools. AA wasn't the tools. They weren't enough, um, which is actually the reading. One of the things I'm going to read is going to sort of talk about this sort of stuff. So it's, it's, it's relevant in two ways. Um, I didn't have the tools. I knew where to go, just like I did with AA, and I knew I knew kind of what to do next to make sure that I wasn't going to go through with anything. So the first thing I did was I text messaged two friends that I knew would at least try to check on me, and that when I messaged them, immediately 
the second I hit send, the feeling, that overwhelming feeling to like end things was gone. Because now I, now I told them myself, and I do this kind of stuff a lot to sort of put myself in check. Sometimes I need that other person to just know. I don't need them to necessarily do anything. I didn't need to be admitted, or at least I didn't feel like I was at that point yet. I told two people, and I said, I'm not trying to put you in a position where you have to have, be burdened by my mental health right now, but I am hoping that I can put you in the position that I can trust you with this without the reaction being in a negative towards me. Like, I just, I just need someone to know that this is where I'm at. Uh, sadly, one of those friends didn't really reach out afterwards. Like, like they messaged and they were like, oh no, that sounds terrible. I hope you're okay. And that was it. I didn't really hear back. The other one was cool enough to, like they responded, they didn't panic, which I appreciated. They just responded that they appreciated that I trusted them with that. And they said, let, let them know if I needed anything and that they were going to check on me. And then they did. You know, I didn't need pity. I didn't need anything like that. I just needed someone to know. And doing that, having those, the, I, and these, so the buddy thing came about from my first experience. And in my head, I knew, okay, I have to choose two people and I'm going to choose them right now. And these two people can't change. And there's going to be two people that I'm going to keep in the back of my head. And when I feel this way, I'm going to reach out to them. I'm not going to tell them ahead of time. I'm just going to have these two people. And I'm going to hold on to that just to kind of put things in front of it. Like I do with drinking. So I reached out to those two people. I went to, I went to a emergency mental health service that's here in, in my hometown. And sadly the experience wasn't great, but it, it wasn't really about them giving me services at this point. It was me just about about me following through. Like I wanted to know, okay, if I if I actually go to this service and I let someone there know that I'm struggling, then hopefully that action itself will be enough. And that way, if I'm not able to get any sort of like aftercare or the care that I want, at least I know in my heart that I'm I don't want to. I'm moving past this. And that's what it was for me. And that's what it did. So I went down to the services. I didn't have any expectations, which was great because I didn't come away with much of anything, um, which is just the nature of American medical mental health. That's just how it is. Like mental health here is not treated like anything worth a damn. So the emergency services gave me some pack packets and pamphlets. I talked to someone for like 20 minutes and at the end of it, they were just like, you know, feel better. And, um, yeah, if you'd like, you can come, you can make an appointment. This was so weird. I still was like, I even repeated it back to him because I didn't think they really said the words right. Maybe I misunderstood. They said, we want you to come back. We want you to set an appointment to come back in person to have a phone meeting with someone who can help. Not even a phone meeting with a counselor, a phone meeting with somebody who could give me resources. And I'm like, I'm holding these packets and I'm like, well, how come I can't just, I have a phone, I, you know, I have phone capabilities and they're like, well, we need you to come down here just as part of the process. And I was like very confused by this because it, 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 I was already there during the day, taking a day off of work, like an emergency day off of work, a sick day. And then to have to come down at some point during the week to sit in that chair alone in a room and call someone on their phone was super weird for me. Like, I didn't think they were like up to something. It just seemed like a, a completely innocuous process. Like I'm taking up this space in your emergency facility to talk to someone over the phone when I could just do that anywhere. So it seemed like it was just kind of disorganized. Maybe that wasn't really something that was sought through. Um, I didn't utilize that service. I did use the pamphlets. And through using the pamphlets, I was able to find... Uh, a counselor. 
Um, it didn't end up actually being any of the numbers that I called on the pamphlets, but it was the process. Like I started calling the pamphlets and it's like, okay, I'm kind of frustrated with this. There has to be an easier way. So I called my insurance. I'd never done this before. And I know people are like, well, I hope you just called your insurance or called your doctor. None of this stuff is common knowledge to me. I'd never really sought out mental health, anything. I never even really sought out a doctor. I didn't see a primary care doctor until I was 40 years old, 40, 39, when I got my job that I have now. I never really had a primary care doctor. I couldn't afford one. So I always had urgent care or something. Never never somebody that I saw regularly. Now I have a doctor, but so a lot of these experiences are very foreign to me. So I called I called a, my insurance. They gave me some resources. I was able to get a counselor. The counselor I got was actually really good. But the other thing I did that I had never done before, because I didn't want, I just wanted my, I just wanted my emotions to be stable for a little while. And I didn't feel like I could actually manage that on my own. And then I didn't want those roller coasters to send me off somewhere. I wanted to be able to focus on the tools to actually make me better, to, to tools that I can continue to use even after my counseling was done. Like I wanted to do counseling long enough that I, I was now equipped with this other set of tools. And I wanted to make sure that I was as focused on that as I could be while not losing who I was, but while maintaining kind of a balance with my emotions and evening out. So I talked to my doctor. I let him know where I was at with stuff. I was honest with like how I was feeling, you know, that previously had been feeling suicidal. And they put me on, I had to look it up. So my memory is so awful with this stuff. I was put on a generic form of Cymbalta, uh, Deloxetin. I think I'm saying that right. And I, you know, the doctor, my doctor worked with me and was like, let's try something mild and see how that goes. Um, you do have to take it for a little while to kind of see how it actually affects you. And I was scared of the side effects, but I also was just more scared of just being in this state of complete like flux. My, you know, my roller coaster emotions were not something I was managing well. And I didn't want my reactions to be crazy from that. Like I didn't want extreme reactions just so that I can try to feel normal. But then I didn't want to be put on a medication that was going to make, that was going to exacerbate that issue. I didn't want to end up on a medicine that was going to make me also suicidal if I was already on the fence with that, I guess. So I, I tried this in Balta. Now I didn't just blind try it. I did ask a friend who had had it. Um, who was also in recovery, and they said that they had a great experience. So I gave it a shot. I did it with the help of a doctor. And um, when I told my uh, my therapist about it, she was like, yeah, a counselor. I, she's like, yeah, I think that's a great idea. So now I say all this because what I found when I was on the Cymbalta was that for, for the time that I was taking it, my emotions were balanced, which was the goal. The, the other goal, though, which I told my counselor and my doctor was this wasn't I didn't want this to be a permanent fix unless it had to be. And the only way for me to find that out was after a time, once I've worked with my counselor for a while, I would I wanted to come off it. The intention was for me to eventually come off it and see if I was able to manage things without it. Because there were side effects that I didn't like. My sleep schedule was sort of all messed up. I uh, My sex drive was kind of weird. I also had trouble with my appetite. Now, they weren't extreme. I, they were manageable. But they were side effects that were affecting me. And I didn't want that to be a lifelong thing. I didn't also want to end up having to take other stuff to combat those side effects and then be on this, you know, I know people that are on cocktails just to kind of all these different things to sort of deal with the different side effects and counteract the side, you know, it gets into to just like this craziness that I just didn't want to deal with. Um, I also knew that I couldn't take other medications that could make me feel high and I couldn't use marijuana. And I know people that do use marijuana and I think for them, it's probably a great fit for me. I would end up abusing it. And I kind of know this just from experience. I wouldn't be taking it medicinally. I'd be taking it to overcompensate. And and it's just not a good idea for me. It's very risky. So the Cymbalta was great. I took it for about six months, worked with my counselor. 
And then with my doctor's assistance, weaned myself off of it. We had like a, uh, we tapered off and then I quit taking it. I had a great experience with both things. My counseling sessions went for a little over a year. And during that time, I, I was able to really work on some stuff. But better than that, I was able to really build some a nice toolbox full of stuff. And since then, since that time, my, my, like my actions are still kind of all over the place sometimes. Not in a destructive or chaotic way, you know, like... Like, you know, having multiple hobbies or deciding I'm going to write a book, you know, that kind of shit is just something that's a part of my brain. And part of the reason why I think I have ADHD and now basically it's confirmed. So I'm going to work with my doctor to find out if it is. So in an attempt to kind of tie up the first portion of this, talking about taking a medication for life is a different thing. And that's kind of what I would be signing up for if I do have ADHD and I decide to go down a medicated path. Now, first, if I do have ADHD, I'm going to start implementing more of the things that I've I've learned, look further into uh, filling up that toolbox and seeing how I can combat that stuff just with like, you know, maybe little hacks that people have learned to see if some of that's manageable. Because some of it has been like, like I said before, I mean, one of the triggers, one of the indicators is, is, you know, explosive emotions, like just an, an emotion rate irregularity. And I have found balance there. I have found more balance than I've ever had before. But the other things are still there. When, when I'm, when I'm able to manage those for very short times, you know, I feel pretty good about things, but it's always short lived. You know, looking back on my life, I can see that there's just been kind of an erratic nature to it. And that erraticness is still there. It's just minimized. I keep talking to people that that are neurotypical, right? Just people that I'm already setting myself aside. Like I've already decided in my brain that I have ADHD, so I need to settle that down. But I talk to people that don't suffer from the shit that I suffer from. That can make like that can just focus on their work tasks until the day's over. That can get up and and start tasks because they know those tasks need to be done. They just they don't have seventeen hobbies that they cycle through. They don't have an inconsistency in relationships because they're able to you know stick things out and they don't have just any of the struggles that I seem to have with finances, etc. And you know, one of them is like, I have an internal monologue in my brain that just never shuts the fuck up. It goes 100, 100 miles a minute. And at times I can't sleep. Like I, I've been taking melatonin to help with that. You know, my sleep had been manageable for a while. But that voice that's in my head that's just yammering away. And this isn't to say that I hear voices. I hear my own voice fucking narrating every second of my day and narrating things I want to do and narrating like images that pop up and it's just constant. And, you know, I have a friend that's like, that's not something I've ever experienced, um, which I guess is more common than what I'm experiencing. But anyways, not to get too far into that, that's where I kind of am mentally is I'm prepared to take this next step. The reason why it's important is the more I look into people that have also discovered this later in life and have started on a path of finding a, a, a medication that works for them, one that they feel comfortable taking. They have a moment where, and I just, I can already know 100% I can tell that this is what's going to happen with me. And I'm not setting myself up for failure. I'm already kind of having this sort of like upheaval since sort of really coming to terms with the possibility, the strong possibility that I do have ADHD is once they're on medicine, once they're on a medication that sort of calms a lot of this stuff down and they're able to focus on tasks and they're able to like make plans and they're able to remember shit, you know, and they're able to follow conversations and they're able to focus on works, work duties and tasks. And, you know, they, there's this moment where you look back on your life and you're like, I don't know anything about who, who I am. All this suffering and struggling and bullshit that I put, I was living through 
could have easily been solved had I actually had access to or reached out to a doctor and talked about this stuff and went down this path. All the pain that had been caused, all the shit. The people that I've been seeing are like, be prepared for that. And I don't know how prepared I am for that. You know, a part of me wants to just be able to do the things I just listed. A part of me is not ready to feel like that my entire life has been a waste because I waited so long to find a way to do those things because I was told by everybody that I just needed to try harder or that I just needed to think different or that I just needed to fucking pay attention. You know, my lack of focus was nobody else's fault but my own and it was because I just allowed it to happen and all this crap that we societally hear on a regular basis no differently than we hear about our addictions and our drinking. People telling us, telling me that to figure it out, quit being weak, being lazy. I, I grew up in the era when people were talking about when this started finally happening for kids and they were being put on Ritalin and they were putting, being put on these other uppers that led to drug abuse in so many of my friends. And I, I missed that. I dodged that, even though I had symptoms that were similar. And I have convinced myself that I'm able to manage this stuff uh, and it might not be true and I might have to consider these medications and I might have to consider looking back on my entire life and having that feeling of I waited till I was 41 to fucking do anything with myself you know what I mean so it's there's there's some difficulty there and as a result of that I'm I'm trying to you know focus double down on my my recovery and make sure that I have all that stuff in place. You know, I say that I didn't go to a meeting. I told myself I was going to go to, I keep like setting goals and then I rearrange those goals and move those goalposts. And, um, so I'm trying to rein that in. Uh, part of that is this podcast, me just spouting all this shit out is a, is an accountability moment for me. Hopefully that means that when I check back in, um, it's, it's after I've made that phone call and have talked to my doctor and we've actually, seen about a diagnosis being a possibility and maybe gone down the path of medication, you know, but yeah, I'm as prepared as I can be for that kind of upheaval that might come about finding out that I've waited this long for something that could be so beneficial to me. Uh, I also keep reminding myself it's never too late. Like, so what? I'm 41. Maybe this medication sets things in my in motion that allow me to actually do all the things I told myself I was going to do, like start a business and write a book and you know, really pursue an art career or whatever other things it might be. It's not too late for any of that. It never, it never is too late. You know, this could lead to me actually being a drug and alcohol counselor. I, I don't know. I know that whatever I've been doing isn't working and I know that I am unhappy with the results. I'm not an unhappy person, person at the moment or at all, but I'm not happy with my inactions. That's why this podcast has been so important to me personally. So I'm still even ranting about this stuff right now. I am determined to see this one through. You know, I've proven with my working out that I can go lengths of time sticking something out that sucks. Like, you know, lifting weights and, and progressively lifting heavier and, and being sore all the time and being, you know, beating my body up. Like I did that for two years straight. It's not a huge amount of time, but if you consider my record, it is for me. And so I know I can stick things out and that's what this is. Like I refuse to quit on this. So I'm, you know, if the medication allows me to be better at this, or if just the diagnosis allows me to work on things that maybe will help, then that's fantastic. If I come away with no diagnosis and they're like, yeah, you're just normal. You're just, you know, kind of a weird dude. Then there's that too. I'll just keep trying to work on healthy habits, you know, either way, I guess like the broader reason for me to even bring any of that up is I'm, I'm never done. I don't want to ever be done growing. And if that means considering consulting a doctor about medications, 
because there's stuff in my life that's still holding me back, then that's what I'm going to do. And I think, I think that's healthy. You know, medication may not work and I, and I end up just in the same place that I was, but I need to keep feeling like if I'm struggling with something that I need to make actual actionable choices to change that in a healthy way. And recovery, 12 step recovery, any kind of recovery can only do so much. It can only go so far um, and it can only help in so many ways. Uh, but there's just, you know, for me, there's always going to be a need, I think, for some sort of outside help. And I think that's that's a reasonable thing to put on myself, that that I'm not always, I'm not fixed. I'm not broken, you know, I'm not on the side of the road, but there's some maintenance that needs to be done. You know, some lights are on and I'm, I'm ready to tackle those. So with that, let's get into the Stoic reading and then the couple things I have prepared. So the first one, I'm just going to read a couple things out of the Godward pamphlet. I may have read them in an episode prior. Uh, my memory isn't great about everything that I've said in these episodes, there's a little section in this I think that's worth worth hearing, even if it's worth hearing again. I, I read it often. We actually read it at my secular meeting or a version of it. So there's that. It's a very short thing. And then uh, there's a letter that Bill Wilson wrote to a depressed friend called Emotional Sobriety. And it was, fav- it was featured in a Grapevine article uh, in 1953. So I mean, we're talking almost 20 years after the inception of the big book. And we're talking at least 20 plus years after he had his last drink. So he had a lot of sobriety when he wrote this letter, or at least when that was published, the article was. And a lot of the stuff that he's struggling with, I just was talking about. But there's a lot of stuff in that letter that I think is extremely helpful. And it's not necessarily specific ties, specifically tied to secularism or atheism or agnosticism in AA, but it is devoid of any like spirituality for the most part. Like it's really just talking about coming to terms with the fact that AA can only do so much. And I think that's an extremely healthy topic to tackle because, you know, I was talking to somebody else. I like to learn about other recovery programs because if I'm ever working with somebody that finds themselves unable to make AA fit with them, then I need to be able to tell them about other recovery programs. And so a part of that is also coming to terms with the possibility that AA may stop working for me as well. I need to be prepared for that because if AA isn't working, then that means I have to find something that that is, and that's okay. That's an okay thing to feel. Um, It's also okay to understand that AA isn't quite enough to fix everything, to cure everything, uh, as I was saying. Uh, And and hearing Bill Wilson talk about that, the person who created this program or helped create this program, 20-something years later, talk about this stuff and work his way through this stuff while trying to help his friend, uh, it's very powerful for me. And it's a very kind of a poignant way to lead into the 12 by 12 because the 12 by 12 was a result of Bill Wilson being in an extremely depressive state and wanting to work his way through that. He found that work beneficial by doing it through, uh, you know, a godly lens. Like he, he, he doubled down on his spiritual principles and maybe he was kind of lacking at the inception of all this. Um, and while that might not, that served him, it might not serve me, that process serves me. The, the willingness to, I am to feel this hurt and this pain and this depression and to say, I'm going to do the work to get out of this and have that work end up being like one of his legacies. It's a very powerful thing. So uh, I think this, I think this will be a good way to lead into that and give us a lot to talk about. So uh, next up, the stoic reading. So this stoic reading is for November 23rd. I feel like I've read this one in this podcast, but I I looked back through my old ones and I couldn't see it. And my memory is non-linear. So it's possible that I read this, you know, years ago for some other reason. And it's just calling a memory. But if for some reason I did read this and I missed that somehow, 
uh, which is very likely as well, please let me know. Uh, this is for November 23rd. Attachments are the enemy. In short, you must remember this, that if you hold anything dear outside of your own reasoned choice, you have destroyed your capacity for choice. Epictetus Discourses 4.4.23 According to Anthony DeMello, there is one thing and only one thing that causes unhappiness. The name of that thing is attachment. Attachments to an image you have of a person, attachments to wealth and status, attachments to a certain place or time, attachments to a job or to a lifestyle, all of those things are dangerous for one reason. They are outside of our reasoned choice. How long we keep them is not in our control. As Epictetus realized some 2,000 years before DeMello, our attachments are what make it so hard to accept change. Once we have them, we don't want to let go. We become slaves to maintaining the status quo. We're like the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland, running faster and faster to stay in the same place. But everything is in a constant state of change. We have certain things for a while and then lose them. The only permanent thing is proheresis, our capacity for reasoned choice. The things we are attached to can come and go. Our choice is resilient and adaptable. The sooner we become aware of this, the better. The easier it will be to accept and adapt to what does happen. Now, like I said, I don't remember if I read that for, for this podcast or it's sticking out because it's one of my favorites in this, especially when it pertains to alcohol, you know, alcoholism, uh, my sobriety, my recovery, just me being better as a human. Uh, one of the things that I really suffered from was an unhealthy attachment style. If you know anything about attachment styles, I was definitely avoidant, fearful for the most part. I, you know, I kind of overlapped into some of the others, but if, if there was going to be one that was at the center of me, it was avoidant, fearful. You know, part of that is being more dependent in relationships. Strongly fears rejection, has low self-esteem, has high anxiety in relationships. All of that came from a fear of losing the thing that I was attached to. Uh, now, this is relationship mostly speaking because that was kind of just my identity for so long was whoever I was in those relationships. I very rarely gave myself the chance to actually form myself as a person. If I wasn't drinking heavily to mask those feelings, then I was masking it inside a relationship of some kind. And that relationship was my attachment. I was scared for it to leave, even if I didn't want to be in that relationship anymore. I was scared of being lonely. Those attachments extend to other things, unhealthy attachments to other kinds of people, mostly in my life. But there's also an attachment to future events that haven't happened yet. And that's where a lot of my, my esteem issues came from and my anxiety was being attached to this thing that I had invented, this future version of things that haven't happened. You know, speaking of my car, back in a few episodes, I talked about my car having some issues and how I had been able to get to the place to where instead of thinking of, I'm not going to be able to afford this. I'm not going to be able to fix this. This is going to break me. This is this is it. This is like I'm losing my car. How am I going to get to work? Which was very typical of me because I was so attached to my car. I was so attached to a certain outcome. I couldn't look at just what was happening right now. I lived so far into the future and it turned out to be a simple fix. It could have been a bad you know, fix. It could have been something that was expensive. My car's acting up again and I, I have a feeling that it's, you know, it's going to be something I'm going to have to fix. Now that sounds avoidant. But that, that wasn't really the case. It was more, okay, let's go read the code on the car first. Then let's figure out what's next. Then figure out what's next after that. And adjust and adapt. You know, looking at my uh, my interest in finding out if I have ADHD, uh, the likelihood that that's, that's the case. Talking to a doctor about it very today. Um, I've split this episode up. So this is the next day from the first half of this episode, first portion of this episode. Uh, I talked to a doctor today. The doctor visit led to me having another visit, which is going to lead to another visit. You know, now it's put out till January 21st. 
you know, I'm going to have to pay for this five minute doctor visit, the full cost, because people didn't relay certain information to me. And even though I relayed information to them, they didn't tell me that, hey, you can just skip that and make this appointment for the psych eval. Anyways, I was starting to get attached to this idea that I was going to be able to call my doctor and then they were just immediately going to give me the prescription of, for something that was going to help me and I was going to find relief for this thing that I've been struggling with my whole life. And the idea in my head that I was going to find relief, you know, in a few days, uh, at first I clung to that. I attached myself to that. So when I heard the doctor say that this was going to have to be a, a different person, I'm going to have to call somebody else, I realized I didn't know what that time frame was. And I realized how disappointed I was feeling and how almost depressed, you know, I didn't really sink into a depression, but I was, I was sad because I felt like I was going to see relief for this thing. I was attached to that future that never happened. I wasn't sure it was going to happen. Uh, and when that was changed, I felt that disappointment, not knowing when the next appointment was going to be. I, I resigned myself to just being ready for whatever that was. I'm not avoiding the issue because I'm calling the doctor, but I'm also not attached to a version of an outcome that hasn't happened yet. You know, I can be hopeful. I was a little hopeful that I was going to get an appointment sooner. I don't have one until January 21st. There might be some alternatives with a different doctor that specializes in this stuff, and I'm going to explore those. But I, rather than live in the frustration that this didn't go my way because I was attached to this future, I just allowed, okay, I, you know what? I can make it a couple months. I'm heading down the path. I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to. And... I'm finally looking into something I've been ignoring my whole life. That's what's happening right now, today, in the moment. Living in the future and attaching myself to things that haven't happened is unreasonable. And it's living inside expectations. And it's just set, it would just set me up for failure. It would just set me up for like massive catastrophic failure, which it has in the past so often. The same with like leading into leading into relationships. You know, I would get into my head and I would decide somebody was going to reject me before they rejected me, before I even... Uh, tried to do anything that would lead to a rejection, I would talk myself out of it well ahead of the time because I would become attached to this scenario that didn't even happen, that wasn't even on the table. And of course, if I did, if I were stuck in that feeling that I wasn't worth someone's attention and therefore, uh, you know, asking a girl out or making that move wasn't even reasonable for me to do that that's reflected in me like that my self-esteem is reflected to other people if i don't have that confidence that i'm setting myself up for failure just by living in this attachment you know to a scenario that didn't happen and this of course extends to all facets of life i don't attach myself to a political party because i think that would limit my ability to actually make reasoned choices based on my values which is how politics should work i don't have a party i don't have a team I don't have flags of people on my wall. I don't worship any of that. I take it as it comes. And I think that's what a lot of this is supposed to be. The same with, you know, recovery. I take it as it comes. I accept and I uh, uh, am willing to adapt to what I need, you know, because I'm open to it. I'm not attached to recovery being my life. I'm not attached to Alcoholics Anonymous being the only solution. I'm not attached to... You know, these seven things that you have to do to get sober, you have to do the steps, you have to go to meetings every day, you have to, you know, go to meetings as often as you got drunk, you have to have 10 sponsors, you have to have, and then living in this sort of judgment of others who aren't living up to that ideal, or worse, judgment of yourself, like this constant ridiculing of, of yourself, like, because you're not living up to this lifestyle that you feel you should be, you know, that removes your reason choice. If, if you have to live an expected 
set of rules inside these things, these these lifestyles, these jobs, these these uh, you know different programs. You don't give yourself any room to potentially grow out of it and grow past it and grow further from yourself to a new version of yourself. You can't evolve if you're stuck in this is the only outcome. This is what I have to do. The status quo, like it said, you know, get the car, get the wife, have the dog, get two kids, white picket fence. Some people, that is all they need and that's happiness for them. But becoming attached to that and then the dog dies. Now you're in turmoil and wife leaves you. Now you're now you're stuck. I'm I'm saying you uh, euphemistically. I'm not suggesting that anybody listening to this can relate specific to, specifically to this. But if you're so attached to that lifestyle and those things leave, you can't adapt to them. That's setting yourself up for failure. I mean, grieve those things, be sad, have them harm you know harm in some way. Of course, those are going to harm and, and cause impact and and cause struggle. But feeling like that it, that it could never change. I'll be this way forever. These things are going to last forever. My grandparents are the last people in my life that I could count on as really family. I have an aunt that I'm kind of close with, but I don't talk to very often. My grandparents are it. I know they're going to pass away someday. And that day is rapidly approaching. They're at an age where every time my grandmother calls, I have a, a bit of a heart-like situation where I feel like this is the day she's going to tell me my grandfather has passed because he's just not doing well. But at the same time, like, that isn't my, my sobriety is not tied to that. My way of life and my happiness is not tied to that. I will be sad. It's not going to be an easy thing at all. It'll fuck me up for a while to lose the last little bit of my family. But that loss isn't going to change my situation. I'm going to remain sober and I'm going to remain in recovery. I'm going to remain working on this podcast. I'm going to remain going to work because none of that is tied to my grandparents. You know, when my mother passed away, I, I said fuck it to everything and I just drank. My mom died of cirrhosis. She died of liver failure. I watched her die of liver failure from drinking herself to death. And I drank my way through that pain because I refused to face it in any kind of a healthy way because I was so attached to her just always being around. I couldn't accept the loss and I couldn't deal with it. I didn't deal with that loss until decades later. And even then it took years for me to work through that. And this is a woman that I had such a tumultuous relationship with. She taught me to steal so she could get drugs. Like, they abused me like there wasn't like it was a lot, a lot of love there, but she was still my mom and it was still a lot to take on. And I just I just couldn't let that go because I was so attached to it. All right. I think I've kind of ran that around in circles a little bit. I'm pretty sure everybody out there gets that. I feel like maybe there was even some things I was working through with that. I'm not sure. Uh, but I apologize if I yammered just a little bit too much on that one. Uh, it is a very important part of the growth I've made is readjusting my attachments to certain things, certain emotions, certain styles and outcomes of how I thought my life was going to go, just different things. And so it resonates with me and I and I end up kind of going off on it. That being said, the two things I'm going to read from, uh, again, the first one is from uh, The God Word, which is a pamphlet that Alcoholics Anonymous released. Now, I don't know when this was first released. I, I believe uh, it wasn't that long ago. I've looked for a date, then I don't know if the date is like the current date that the pamphlet that I'm looking at was published, you know, like there's been updates. So it was, you know, republished under a different date. I don't know. It says 2018. I, I can't imagine that's correct. I feel like this pamphlet's been around a little bit longer than that. Uh, but the one before it has stuff from 2015. So I know it was really recently and I know it took a long time, a long time, the General Assembly to admit that they needed to pay a little bit more attention to 
agnostic and atheist in in recovery in AA because the book wasn't really doing its job there. Um, we went through we agnostics and it's kind of a kick in the face to anybody who's an atheist or an agnostic. Some of the later now there's been grapevine articles that had mentions of this stuff. And I'm actually going to read one of those articles from Bill Wilson because he he is he was a champion for this. And even though he was, the General Assembly still kind of fought against him and others to include more secular options revolving around this stuff. I mean, one of the first groups in Chicago was an atheist agnostic group. Like they only studied or focused on the moral aspect, the psychology aspect of this program. They did not focus on the spiritual. And this was in the 50s. So like it took that long for there to be any reasonable like attempt to even mention people who are atheist or agnostic. So I'm going to read a little bit out of the pamphlet. Uh, again, you can find this in most meeting halls. If you don't find it, I would suggest that what I did was when I didn't see it at my meeting, I waited until, and this was not the secular group. Of course, we have it at the secular group. But I waited until their next business meeting. I made sure to be there. And then I specifically requested that from the chips and lint person. And it took me two times. I had to go to two different business meetings because the first one, they said they wrote it down. And the second one, they said they just forgot. So it took me a minute to get that in there. But we did get it in there. And I was able to reference that anytime it was reasonable to do so whenever there was a share that, you know, somebody maybe was saying they were having difficulties with it. I could reference it or I could at least go up to them after the meeting and say, hey, check this out. This is an option. Uh, but it's likely that your group doesn't have it. So if you see that, you know, if you are going to traditional meetings and you see they don't have that pamphlet, the God word, ask for it specifically. You may not even have to go to a business meeting. You might be able to just drop the suggestion to whoever's chairing that day or the secretary or something like that. Now, there are some folks in recovery who are secular that don't like this pamphlet. I appreciate that it was an attempt. I can see, though, how some might take it as placating folks that are that are secular, uh, given how long it took for them to actually admit that atheists were even in recovery for the most part. You know what I mean? Like, that's how it felt to me. Uh, this is still an important, important like step. It gave voice. People who had been asking for it now can ask for other things. They can push a little bit harder for secularism in AA to be a little bit more recognized. That being said, when they did their first secular AA like conference, there was a lot of pushback from regular AA, from traditional AA. Like it wasn't listed in a lot of places. There was, I mean, there was just like some unreasonable hate, which I found interesting because the person that like it gave the commemorance speech the first time was a it was a catholic priest he's a pastor and his speech talked all about inclusivity and uh talked about how it's important that we we bridge that gap because he also was somebody who had uh sponsored people that were non-religious and rather than beat his religion over their head he learned more about secularism and either got them in touch with people that could help him a lot more than he could or did his best to do as we're doing and try to understand something that uh, seems foreign to us, or at least try to digest it in a way that's healthy. And I guess that was seen as fucking sacrilege. I don't even know like the whole details. I just know that secularism in AA is and has not had the best time. Toronto, Canada, if you want to look further into that, is is a sign of that. They refuse to list atheist meetings, secular meetings. They refuse to uh, acknowledge it at all. And the gen general services just fucking let it happen. And it turned into this real big shit show. And that was fairly recent as well so you know it's for some reason of course people are going to fight against this because they don't want to end up thinking like somehow their religion is wrong even though them allowing this belief to exist within multiple religions is already doing that for them whatever 
The main point is that secularism has come a long way in AA. That's the main point. This pamphlet was a step in that direction, and it has some of the best phrasing I have heard from Bill Wilson, who I just really appreciate. I appreciate him for all his flaws, and I appreciate him for being such a bastion for inclusivity, because it's so important. Never should anybody feel unwelcome in recovery. It just should never happen. And I think he understood that. So what this pamphlet is, it's an introduction. It's some words from Bill Wilson. And then it's some stories from members who have written in. And then there's like a list of resources. So I'm not going to read all the stories. I might pick one to read, but for sure I'm going to read this introduction, starting with this. AA is not a religious organization. Alcoholics Anonymous has only one requirement for membership, and that is a desire to stop drinking. There is room in AA for people of all shades of belief and non-belief. Many members believe in some sort of God, and we have members who come from and practice all sorts of religions, but many are also atheist or agnostic. It's important to remember that AA is not a religious organization. We have a simple idea that there is a power greater than us as individuals. That's the part right there that many folks in secularism do not get behind. And still kind of has like a, a we agnostic kind of a feel. We have to believe in some sort of a greater power in order for us to find sobriety. And again, I just don't feel that's necessary. And I think many people are at that point where they don't feel that's necessary. Believing that a that AA can help us isn't the same as having a power greater than us. Uh, continuing on. What we have all in common is that the program helps us find an inner strength that we are previously unaware of. Where we differ is in how we identify the source. Some people have thought of the word God as standing for good orderly direction or even group of drunks. But many of us believe that there is something, something bigger than ourselves that is helping us today. I don't believe in either. I've, I'm sure I've mentioned that. Good orderly direction or even groups of drunks. I know a lot of people that like give that over as an acceptable term, but really to me it just seems like it's an attempt to have us continue to use a word that makes them feel comfortable and has no meaning to me. But you know, I've talked a lot about that. This power may lie within some person's religious beliefs or it can be completely separate from any religion. For example, one member looks at the sea and accepts that it is a power greater than him. We could ask ourselves, do I believe that somehow there is a power greater than myself? Again, it's still, you know, it is kind of pushing this idea that we do find that. As AA co-founder Bill W. wrote in 1965, at 65, that's how long ago this was, but this was still, 1965 was still 30-something years after the inception of all this. It took that long. You know what I mean? For him to really come around to this. And there's other stuff where he wrote about like the 50s uh, on occasion where he would talk a little bit about this. But this you can see he's really fully come around to understanding that he doesn't understand atheism or agnosticism, but fully accepts it. Again, Bill Wilson said this in 1965. We have atheists and agnostics. We have people of nearly every race, culture and religion. In AA, we are supposed to be bound together in the kinship of a common suffering. Consequently, the full individual liberty to practice any creed or principle or therapy, whatever, should be a first consideration for us all. And I'm going to interrupt just a second to touch on that. Uh, consequently, the full individual liberty to practice any creed or principle or therapy. This is so important because there are people who use Alcoholics Anonymous as their primary source of recovery who also use cannabis, who also use METs, which is medically assisted treatment. And just because I might not understand exactly how that might work for someone or keep them in recovery, I know people who have lived on Suboxone and led a healthy life. They don't abuse that drug and they are able to maintain a level of happiness and eventually wean off. Some people end up on it for a long time and there's some controversy revolving around that, but that's not my controversy to deal with. 
whatever, whatever they're struggling with, if it's helping them recover and stay in recovery, that's not my business. What I feel about it outside of how I might feel it would have better, you know, it would affect me. If somebody's using cannabis to, to stick around in recovery, Cali sober, all the power to you, 100%. It is not up to me to decide for somebody else if their recovery is valid. It really isn't. You know, we can request in our AA meetings that are closed that people don't talk about their marijuana usage. Uh, but ultimately, if they're using marijuana, we don't get decide to decide for them that they're not in recovery. That it just isn't how it works. We can decide for ourselves. I can decide for myself that I can't smoke marijuana because I will abuse it. But I understand the medicinal benefits of it. You know, you hear somebody talk about being being put on Zoloft or Prozac or Ritalin or whatever other thing to help with whatever mental illnesses they're dealing with. And nobody bats an eye. Maybe there's like a uh, be careful with it. Somebody taking allergy medications. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we could end up abusing. If we're put on medication because we're in pain, as long as we follow the recommended dosage, then that's sobriety. That's somehow still recovery. But if somebody chooses to smoke weed because it helps with their anxiety and it lowers uh, some other things they might be dealing with, suddenly everybody's decided for them that that's not recovery. That's not okay. It just isn't. The second we get stuck in judging what other people's recovery should look like is the second we completely forget about our own. That becomes an attachment too. That's a part of that lifestyle. My recovery is the only thing I need to worry about. That's it. And whatever I'm giving away, if somebody else accept that, accepts that, that's great. The action of giving it away is all that's important. Them taking it is not my decision. That's not on me. It's not like free reign to be a shitty sponsor. Don't take it that way. But if I'm leaving a healthy, happy, and natural life and I give that over to somebody else and it doesn't work for them, then I need to be able and be capable of pointing them in the direction of something that will be. And if that includes them smoking some weed once in a while, then that's something I should be able to be open to. Period. The fact that Bill Wilson more than alludes to that just solidifies that important. Even doubles down on this in the next sentence. Let us not, therefore, pressure anyone with our individual or even our collective views. Let us instead accord each other the respect and love that is due every human being as he tries to make his way toward the light. Let us always try to be inclusive rather than exclusive. Let us remember that each alcoholic among us is a member of AA as long as he or she declares. End quote. The next paragraph in this pamphlet is, Whatever you do, please don't let someone else's religious beliefs prevent you from finding the solution that is available to you through Alcoholics Anonymous. And that goes to everybody. It does say, you know, previously that you should still attempt to try to find a higher power in a very we agnostic kind of a way, but it is an attempt to make us feel more included. Bill Wilson does a better job of that, I feel, in what he was saying. So the story I'm going to read is Mikey's story. It's in this pamphlet, and it's actually, it's the best one in here. And it does a lot to say things that I've tried to say already, but in a, a little bit better of a fashion. As an atheist, I have found over 15 years of rewarding growth in AA, but the absence of agreement on religious issues has been a challenge. Once I started to take AA's suggestions, confusion gave way to clarity, and AA's gifts of happiness, serenity, and gratitude slowly made their way into my life. But there was a difficulty for me in those early days. At meeting after meeting, I heard that if I expected lasting sobriety, I'd have to somehow come to believe that a mystical force was in charge of my life, that I'd have to turn my will over to this supernatural force and even seek to discover his will for me. And I'm going to interrupt real quick just to say that, yes, this is a lot of my experiences and this is how I felt in the first 
time I came through AA that like this, I'm missing something. There's some aspect of this program that's never going to work for me. And therefore I'm never going to really achieve sobriety or recovery. That's if anybody really wanted to know a hundred percent, what it was that I was doing here was to in this podcast, in this moment, whatever it's to it's to fight against that feeling. Nobody should feel that in recovery, that sinking pit feeling that I cannot achieve recovery without this. Because again, this is the last house on the block, right? Like this is our last stop. There's no other doors open to recovering alcoholics like us, quote unquote. There are, but you know, some people don't feel that. They don't know that. So sitting in a meeting and hearing that if you don't do these things, you'll never be sober. You'll never be recovered. You'll always be sick. You'll always be broken is fucking horribly damaging to the psyche. So I'm glad that there's other people. I'm glad this story is in here. And I wish this was more broadly known as like what can happen to people. Back to the reading. I was horrified to think that such would be the price of sobriety for me. I would have to renounce my rational convictions. I was in despair. Here, could you imagine feeling like that somehow your rational convictions were a character defect that had to be abolished and replaced with some sort of a religion for you to get sober? It's an awful feeling. Then I found a sponsor who showed me the ropes. He guided me through my first step and taught me that sobriety was possible for an alcoholic who was unable to pretend that reality was something it wasn't. In fact, he told me honesty required not pretending about anything. And honesty, he told me, was a non-negotiable requirement for sobriety. Now that one I believe. I mean, honesty should be a requirement for every everything, every aspect of life. If you're hanging out of the idea that you can somehow lie through some aspect of this, it's not going to work. But in order to be honest, I would have to examine myself carefully. I would have to embrace a power that would let me see myself for what I was. I would have to turn my life over to the power of re reason if I were to be restored to sanity. After all, the essence of my alcoholic insanity was a cognitive break with reality. I really like this version of this. I mean, if you, if I were to decide that something greater power uh, would work for me, I would say reason. I get this like kind of uh, turning over idea. When I turned my life over to the higher power of reason, the insanity began to dissolve away. I discovered that life can be driven by the principles of the steps rather than by my impulses and urges. As I turned my life over to the principles of the steps, my former alcoholic behaviors began to take a back seat. And I can relate to this. And I think that that very well describes what I've been talking about throughout a lot of this is once I gave this all an honest attempt, it actually started working in my life and things improved. My character defects and shortcomings were all tied up with the urges and impulses of my former alcoholic life. The more I aligned my life with the principles of the step, the more clear the steps, the more clearly I was able to see the world and the less frequently I found myself at the mercy of urges and impulses, anger and resentments, of guilt from harm done to others, or just plain fears. I was being set free. It could never have happened drunk. It could never have happened without discovering the principles of the steps. It happened when the principles of the steps were put into practice by a mindset free by the power, higher power of reason. It is a blessing for which I shall be forever grateful. I just really like how that's worded. You know, it, there's no like placating or transference of like, you know, forcing yourself to believe something. It seems like a pretty reasonable thing to use reason as a power that might be above you, you know, since there are laws of nature, I suppose. How, however you want to like look at that, I really enjoy the way that person worded it. Now, real quick, before we move on to the letter that Bill Wilson wrote called um, Emotional Sobriety, I'm going to read something uh, that he wrote for an AA grapevine back in 1961. Though 300,000 did recover in the last 25 years, maybe half a million or more walked on into our midst and then out again. No doubt some were too sick to make even a start. Others couldn't or wouldn't admit their alcoholism. 
Still others couldn't face up to their underlying personality defects. Numbers departed for still other reasons. Yet we can't well content ourselves with the view that all these recovery failures were entirely the fault of the newcomers themselves. Perhaps a great many didn't receive the kind and amount of sponsorship they so sorely needed. We didn't communicate when we might have done so. So we AAs failed them. Perhaps more often than we think, we still make no contact at depth with those suffering the dilemma of no faith. Certainly none are more sensitive to spiritual cocksureness, pride, and aggression than they are. I'm sure this is something we too often forget. In AA's first years, I, uh, I all but ruined the whole undertaking with this sort of unconscious arrogance. God, as I understood him, had to be for everybody. Sometimes my aggression was subtle and sometimes it was crude. But either way, it was damaging, perhaps fatally so, to numbers of non-believers. This is such, like, I mean, this is a powerful, you know, realization to have for just anybody. What, what's interesting is how long it took, 1961, almost 30 years after the writing of the big book, for him to realize that, you know what, maybe the reason why some people aren't getting this is because some of us are assholes and are pushing things in the wrong way and are pushing people out the door with how aggressive we are with some of the things that we're doing. Then, for the first time, it burst in upon me how very dead faith can be when minus responsibility. The doctor had an unwavering belief in his ideals. Uh, Dr. Bob is who he's referencing. But he also practiced humility, wisdom, and responsibility, hence his superb demonstration. My own spiritual awakening had given me a built-in faith in God, a gift indeed, but I had been neither humble nor wise. Boasting of my faith, I had forgotten my ideals. Pride and irresponsibility had taken their place. By so cutting off my own light, I had little to offer my fellow alcoholics. At last, I saw why many had gone away, some of them forever. And, you know, yeah, that's exactly it. That's I know people who have never returned to AA because of how it made them feel. I'm in a Facebook group that's for AA Beyond Belief for folks that are secular. Some of those folks, I can tell, will just never return. They won't even go to secular meetings. They're only in the group because at least some people are sober there and they'll listen to them. You know, they don't feel like they have a home. They felt, they felt driven out. This is part of the reason why I started this podcast. Part of the reason why I will constantly and continually speak up about my beliefs or lack of beliefs in meetings. Nobody, again, nobody ever should be made to feel like that they're not welcome in Alcoholics Anonymous, period. I've read this a few times in meetings. It's kind of like a subtle, not so subtle call out uh, to people that might be making others feel uncomfortable. I definitely suggest others do the same. Folks have a hard time arguing against their martyr. I love Bill Wilson, but he was just a guy. A guy who had growth and who showed real potential to be a great human being. But again, it took him almost 30 years to speak out about this stuff. You know, as good of a guy as he was, this is shit you should be able to recognize right away. You know what I mean? Anyways. So again, this next thing that I'm going to read is a letter. Bill wrote it to a close friend who was dealing with some depression. But what ended up happening is Bill realized that he was using the letter to work through his own depression. Because that's, you know, again, whatever my faults are with the man, he he would go to work. That's how he fixed his depressions. He would take actions for him that was writing. Some of that action was also in just reaching out to people that needed help, right? That's what I do. If I feel like things are spiraling, I go to a meeting, I try to help somebody or I call someone. That's helped me the most. And so his letter to this person, you know, that's what it was. And the reason why I think this is going to be helpful, even though he does speak a little bit more of God, since that's what his faith is, this sort of leads into the 12 by 12, since the 12 by 12 was another attempt at working through a depression that almost crippled him. Um, but this also applies to attachment, uh, which was, this all really works out really great. So we'll get into it. I'll try to make it quick since I realized that I'm, I'm kind of 
uh, heading towards this being quite a bit more than an hour. Um, hopefully that's okay for folks. I'll do my best to keep it. I think an hour is about the sweet spot. It's been working out really well, but if it goes a little over, I apologize. Uh, and then going into the letter. I think that many oldsters who have put our AA booze cure to severe but successful tests still find they often lack emotional sobriety. Perhaps they will be the spearhead for the next major development in AA, the development of much more maturity and balance, which is to say humility, in our relations with ourselves, our fellows, and with God. Those adolescent urges that so many of us have for top approval, perfect security, and perfect romance, urges quite appropriate to age 17, prove to be an impossible way of life when we are at age 47 or 57. This is, again, this is tying into that attachment thing that I was that I read for the Stoic reading. Since AA began, I've taken immense wallops in all these areas because of my failure to grow up emotionally and spiritually. My God, how pa painful it is to keep demanding the impossible, and how very painful to discover finally that all along we have had the cart before the horse. Then comes the final agony of seeing how awfully wrong we have been, but still finding ourselves unable to get off the emotional merry-go-round. At this point, Bill Wilson's been sober 30 years when he wrote this. I believe 1965, I think, is when this was written. So he's been he's been uh, sober almost 35 years, I think, right? So he got sober in 30... Four, I believe. And in this, I feel like, you know, he's realizing something that all of us, I think, could realize or hopefully could realize sooner than 31 years later in sobriety that getting sober is just the start. Even working the steps is just the start. Once we dig up all those traumas, you know, the next step is is finding that emotional sobriety, that balance and recovery from the traumas that we endured over the years. Uh, before I get further, I'm going to I'm going to warn you, you know, Bill wrote really weird sometimes. And there's a few instances where it just does not roll off the tongue. Uh, but I kind of get what he's trying to say. This next one. How to translate a right mental conviction into a right emotional result and so into easy, happy, and good living. I think he means like and so on. Into easy, happy, and good living. Well, that's not only the neurotic's problem. It is the problem of life itself for all of us who have got to the point of real willingness to hew to right principles in all our affairs. I'm not someone who believes that you can control your emotions, but I have talked about the idea that you can control the things that lead to emotions. If trauma results in emotions and then results in action towards those emotions and things can trigger those traumas and cause those emotions, then our healing of the trauma changes that emotional response. So in a way, we control our emotions by controlling the things that cause those emotions, right? It's kind of what I think he's trying to say here. How do we even begin to do that? Even then, as we heave away, peace and joy may still elude us. That's the place so many of us AA oldsters have come to, and it's a hell of a spot, literally. How shall our unconscious, from which so many of our fears, compulsions, and phony aspirations still stream, be brought into line with what we actually believe, know, and want? How to convince our dumb, raging, and hidden Mr. Hyde becomes our main task. Now, what it feels like he's talking about is that he's he's become kind of a dry drunk, right? Somebody who, who just quit, but didn't work on anything else. Not saying that that's what he did, but that's like where it's come. He's basically describing that the hide's still there, right? Even though he quit drinking, a lot of that shit's still there. I've recently come to believe that this can be achieved. I believe so because I begin to see many benighted fo ones, folks like you and me, commencing to get results. Last autumn, several years back, depression, having no real rational cause at all, almost took me to the cleaners. I began to be scared that I was in for another long chronic spell. Considering the grief I've had with depressions, it wasn't a bright prospect. The idea that it came out of nowhere. 
I've had that right happen. Most, I think people can kind of relate with that. Like just, it just came out of nowhere. And that's, I think a realization that some people have is that, yeah, it's chemically induced sometimes without it being related to a chemical that we are bringing into our bodies. Just our brains are, they do shit, you know? Sometimes there's no reason for depression. The only thing we can do is is to to work through it, to make healthy choices during, and uh, and to not hate ourselves for it. I kept asking myself, why can't the 12 steps work to release depression? By the hour, I stared at the St. Francis prayer. It's better to comfort than to be comforted. Here was the formula, all right, but why didn't it work? Suddenly, I realized what the matter was. My basic flaw had always been dependence, almost absolute dependence, on people or circumstances to supply me with prestige, security, and the like. Failing to get these things according to my perfectionist dreams and specifications, I had fought for them. And when defeat came, so did my depression. And there it is, right? The, the realization that internal happiness cannot come from external means, plain and simple. There wasn't a chance of making the outgoing love of St. Francis a workable and joyous way of life until these fatal and almost absolute dependencies were cut away. Now he's starting to work on those attachments. Because I had, over the years, undergone a literal spiritual development, the absolute quality of these frightful dependencies had never before been so starkly revealed. Reinforced by what grace I could secure in prayer, I found I had to exert every ounce of will and action to cut off these faulty emotional dependencies upon people, upon AA, indeed, upon any set of circumstances whatsoever. And there, yeah, he's very clearly talking about attachments the same way that Epictetus was. You can't make any more choices if the only choices you, you have are within the confinements of these things that are no longer serving you or they aren't serving you fully. And maybe they're serving you in a static sense. They're keeping you in place. But if you're on this mission to continually grow and to find a path of, of ever more better versions of you, then you can't be placated and, and you can't be stagnant. And that means being able to grow away from these dependencies. Then only could I be free as to love as Francis had. Emotional and instinctual satisfactions I saw were really the extra dividends of having love, offering love, and expressing a love appropriate to each relation of life, including yourself. It doesn't say this, but including yourself. I feel like we leave ourselves off of all these lists. Should start there in the center and then radiate out. Plainly, I could not avail myself of God's love until I was able to offer it back to him by loving others as he would have loved me. And I couldn't possibly do that so long as I was victimized by false dependencies. That idea of false dependencies, I like this a lot. You know, the when you recover, when I recovered from being codependent and started to finally move away from the sense that other people contributed to my happiness, that other people were responsible for my happiness. The, the the feeling of that was that that was a false dependence. You know, there there shouldn't be much that I'm dependent on. There's there's things I can rely on that are important in my life, but emotionally dependent on, it's a very dangerous thing, honestly. That doesn't mean that you don't love them and appreciate them and respect them, these things, but being dependent on them can, can really put yourself in a, in a bind. For my dependency meant demand, a demand for the possession and control of the people and the conditions surrounding me. Being codependent, that's exactly what that meant for me. Not having boundaries was a way of manipulating people into being closer to me, into staying with me, into liking me, into, into wanting me around. And being, being codependent was lowering those boundaries. It was doing what they wanted, doing, you know, sacrificing things for them, giving of myself, compromising myself for them. I mean, it's not, it's obviously not a healthy thing. And this can happen with institutions. Going into a room of Alcoholics Anonymous as a non-believer and saying the word God 
so that you can fit in or feel comfortable so that they don't look at you because you're dependent on AA as, a, as an institution to protect you from alcohol. That puts that, and I, again, I'm saying you, euphemistic, like it as a euphemism, not, not saying that you listener person over there, just the sense that that's what would, might be required, you know, false dependence on Alcoholics Anonymous. If that's the feeling you have about Alcoholics Anonymous, that that's the only way that this program can work for you, then you don't have to depend on this program. Sorry, it keeps saying a lot of the same stuff. I do apologize. It's just resonating. So it keeps popping back up. While those words absolute dependency may look like a gimmick, they were the ones that helped to trigger my release into the present degree of stability and quietness of mind, qualities which I am now trying to consolidate by offering love to others regardless of the return to me. That's important too. Giving, giving with no expectation of reward. This seems to be the primary healing circuit, an outgoing love of God's creation and his people by means of which we avail ourselves of his love for us. It is most clear that the real current can't flow until our, our paralyzing dependencies are broken and broken at depth. Only then can we possibly have a glimmer of what adult love really is. That's a very interesting choice of wording, adult love. And I think that there is an importance to that and why it might be different than like childlike love or even love and appreciation for like your pets. You know, adult love in a lot of ways is a choice, at least the expression of it. When you're a kid, you just love things. You just love your parents. You're taught how to express that or how not to express that or when it's allowed. You know, when you're an adult, you, you, you know, speaking of my love for my friends, right? Like if I were to talk about my love for my male friends as a guy, uh, for those that are not gender identifying, you know, that's, I know this might be uncomfortable, but I am cis male. So this is like what I can speak from. There's a lot of uncomfortability when it comes to, or was when it comes to expressing my love for my male friends, I have just gotten to the point to where I could give a shit and I make them feel uncomfortable with my expression of love to them. I tell, I tell my male friends, I love them all the time. I have some that reciprocate and it's no big deal. I have one that's a big tough convict that it, you know, at first makes them feel uncomfortable. The saying the word, I love you to him, not so much. But when I actually express it, when I take a second and I get his full attention, I was like, you know, I really appreciate you, man. Like I can tell it makes him feel uncomfortable. And I do that because I know that men feel that way. Men like that. They're stuck in this masculine fucking identity that they can't escape. They are attached to that ideal. That's an adult love. And it's an adult expression. And I get that's what Bill Wilson's talking about here. Spiritual calculus, you say? Not a bit of it. Watch any AA of six months working with a new 12-step case. If the case says, to the devil with you, the 12-stepper only smiles and turns to another case. He doesn't feel frustrated or rejected. If his next case responds and in turn starts to give love and attention to other alcoholics, yet gives none back to him, the sponsor is happy about it anyway. He still doesn't feel rejected. Instead, he rejoices that his one-time prospect is sober and happy. And if his next following case turns out in a later time to be his best friend or romance, then the sponsor is most joyful. But he well knows that his happiness is a byproduct, the extra dividend of giving away without any demand for a return. My previous sponsor had this tale where he was talking about first coming into the meeting and he had a, a sponsor that was like two sponsors removed from Bill Wilson. Uh, he could trace his lineage back, had met Bill Wilson. And it was, you know, it's interesting to have a sponsor like that because they have that old school AA, right? So he was talking about how his sponsor was like, you need to go to a meeting and you start shaking hands. You know, he's one of these like militant types. Like, I'm going to fucking tell you what to do and you're going to do it. That wouldn't work for me, but I get this premise of what he's saying and I really enjoy it. He said, you're going to go to the meetings and you start shaking people's hands. My sponsor was like, I don't really want to though. And he's like, I don't care if you want to. What's important is the hand gets shook. 
Like, I don't care what your intentions are. Shake the hand. Because that person might need to just know that they can feel comfortable. That they are included in the meeting. That they're, they're wanted. Doesn't matter if you want to or not. Like, the end result is that this person might need that. And it turned into him getting sponsors and sponsees and, and getting to know a bunch of people. He ended up making a whole friend circle because he just went out and he's like, okay, it doesn't matter why I'm shaking this person's hand. Like, me including this person into this is what's important. Me giving this thing away even at a small increment is what's important. The really stabilizing thing for him was having and offering love to that strange drunk on his doorstep. That was Francis at work, powerful and practical, minus dependency and minus demand. Speaking from a relationship standpoint, this was really important for me to understand as well. Because so much of what I was doing, I think I've talked about this, so much of what I was doing was transactional. Not like directly, you know, I didn't go kayaking by myself because I thought that immediately would be used as some sort of a transaction to get the attention of women. But I did it subconsciously because in the future I would be able to tell people I kayak. Like I just did things for this end goal of of that of being some sort of like increasing my value specifically for the purpose purpose of increasing my value as a potential partner not because i wanted to do these things i had this dependence on being in a relationship so heavily that that's the kind of shit that i was doing was like i'm gonna start hiking i didn't really want to fucking hike but it, it had become transactional so now you know i do things because i want to without the expectation it's going to get me something and I find a lot more happiness in that. So I'm just, I'm kind of like trying to extrapolate this in a way that it doesn't necessarily have to be 100% about recovery. My life is not recovery. My life is just in it. In the first six months of my own sobriety, I worked hard with many alcoholics. Not a one responded. Yet this work kept me sober. It wasn't a question of those alcoholics giving me anything. My stability came out of trying to give, not out of demanding that I receive. I actually personally experienced this with trying to get a sponsee. It took me a long time, and I only ended up getting one for a short period. For some reason, people just didn't want to work with me. I would ask multiples, you know, hey, are you looking for a sponsor? I'm willing to sponsor. Uh, no luck. My old sponsor actually gave me the task of going and shaking two. He said, shake two hands, introduce yourself, and give out your phone number to two people. As like an attempt to break that, and it just didn't really work out. Which is fine. That's why the podcast has been so helpful. I might not be sponsoring, but at least I'm giving the message in some way. Thus, I think it can work out with emotional sobriety. If we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root of it some unhealthy dependence and its consequent unhealthy demand. Let us, with God's help... Meh, continually surrender these hobbying, hobbling demands. Then we can be set free to live and love. We may then be able to 12-step ourselves and others into emotional sobriety. I like that, 12-step yourself. You know, do, do these steps on yourself, even the ones that are for someone else. I, I like that kind of thinking. Um, I also like the idea that, you know, at the root of everything is a fear, right? Like, I mean, that's what we've been determining from the 12 steps. That's just sort of how things work. And... A lot of the times those fears are, de are, are false dependencies. Of course, I haven't offered you a really new idea, only a gimmick that has started to unhook several of my own hexes at depth. Nowadays, my brain no longer rages compulsively in either elation, grandiosity, or depression. I have been given a quiet place in bright sunshine. So that's, I mean, that's pretty powerful. 31 years into his sobriety, he's writing this letter to a friend and he's working through this stuff as he's writing it. In that... He makes it pretty clear that he understands that AA is just a tool like any other. It's not even the only one. Like he doesn't say that specifically, but he says it's a gimmick. Like he knows it's just tricks. It's just tricks to get people to look at themselves and to really work on the meat and the, the core and the root cause of all this stuff. 
31 years later, he's just relaying this to somebody. Oh, 1958. It's not quite 31 years. 24 years. I misread uh, the date because this is like this is like a, a letter that's attached to a website. That's it's not any. Anyways, I got the day wrong. 24 years is still a long time to, you know, finally come to the realization. A lot of this stuff. But what I take away from that is that 24 years later, the man was still growing. He was still evolving in time and space when it wasn't really a thing that people did. Modern man didn't really evolve much. In the 30s, 40s, and 50s, even the 60s. And as you get older, it's not like it's easier to evolve. But, you know, this guy's still showing that that's, that's exactly what he was doing. That's some pretty cool shit, especially somebody who didn't have to. And I'm not saying that he didn't, like it wasn't necessary for his recovery. I'm just saying that if he had rested on his laurels and just coasted his way to the rest of sobriety, he probably would have been fine just based on the work that he was continuing to do. But that wasn't good enough. Doing the bare minimum wasn't good enough. And I appreciate appreciate the shit out of that. It just shows me that this is going to be a process I'm going to have to keep doing, but that at no point am I done. So even if I feel stuck in life, and even if I feel like miserable about my circumstances, as long as I keep moving forward, there's going to still be growth there. I'm going to work through it, and I'm going to come out better for it on the other side. That's what I get out of all of this. Yes, it's important for me to start looking at the things that I'm heavily dependent on and start working on detaching from those things. But ultimately, as long as, long as I continue to do that work, I will continue to grow. It's a great feeling. Um, so yeah, that's the end of that. So moving forward, the next thing I'm going to get into is the 12, 12 by 12. It's going to be at least 12 episodes. Uh, I'm just going to try to space it out so that each episode is, it's going to be one step and one tradition. I think that's the best way to do it. And we'll do them in conjunction and go all the way through. Uh, after those 12 episodes, you know, I think I'm just going to have to start digging into other recovery programs. I'm not really sure what I will do after those 12 episodes. That's just the honest truth. I think I'm going to just going to continue to allow this to evolve uh, into the next set of things. It gives me three months to figure it out, though. So for now, I appreciate everybody listening. You can catch me on Facebook at An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. There's both the group and the web page. Yeah, the, the business page. You can write to me directly at one atheist in AA at gmail.com. I'm getting better at replying to that a little bit sooner. You can also send me a tweet at an atheist in. You can find me on Instagram at atheist underscore in underscore AA. And you can find me on TikTok at the Beardo, B E I. RDO. But that's it for now. I appreciate everybody who's continued to listen. My views are still going, or my listens are still going up, and I just find it increasingly fantastic. Every time that I see someone new is, is trucking along and, and slowly working their way up uh, each episode, it gives me the biggest fucking smile, man. So I appreciate everybody who's listening, and thank you for keeping me sober one more day. Until next time.